Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. Hi, I'm Miranda Wright, and this is day 44 of our 120-day Upper Room Prayer Campaign. Today, we're going to thank God for His great love for us and pray that we might have a revelation of that love, that we might walk therein in power, boldness, and assurity, knowing that His perfect love should cast out every fear. Because when we truly come to realize what He has endured to bring us back into right relationship with him, to adopt us into his family, then will we stop listening and agreeing to the lies of the enemy who speaks in our ear all of those fears. Because you see, the word says that he has not given us that spirit of fear, but of power, of love, of sound mind, and of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy God, to know that he is our provider, to know that he is our protector, to know that he loves us, to know that he fights for us, to know that he prepares the way for us, to know that he truly loves us, will cast out every fear of failure, every fear of attack, every fear of the words and thoughts of men, because my friend, I have come to realize that the more secure I am, In the reality that God loves me, the less it matters to me when people don't. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 15, we read that whosoever, whosoever, I love the whosoever's in scripture because it is so all-encompassing. It means that nobody is left out, that God is no respecter of persons, that God has not chosen anyone to miss the opportunity for salvation, but he has made a way for who so. You know, when Jesus gave the parable of the marriage supper, and he said that the master servants went out and invited everyone to the marriage supper, the good and the bad. However, when they came in, someone came in without a wedding garment. And of course, we know by the scriptures in the book of Revelation that the garment is the righteousness of the saints. And so when he came in, the master said, how dare you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was cast out. At which point we read that famous verse, for many are called, but few are chosen. And then we come to realize by the context of the parable in which it is placed that all were called to the marriage supper. Whosoever was willing could come, but... Only few were actually chosen to be allowed in because that they would not put on the righteousness. Because you see, my friend, that when we believe the words of the living God and begin to walk therein, we walk in his righteousness, not our own righteousness, but we put on the righteousness of Christ, that what he said was right. Because Paul said that many have a zeal for the Lord, but not according to righteousness. Therefore, trying to obtain it in their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, they do what they think is right and they have a zeal for the Lord, but they won't humble themselves to seek him to walk in agreement and alignment with what he has said is right. They didn't truly believe him. Just like at the marriage supper, all were invited because of the great love and mercy of the master. He gave the invitation, but not all made themselves ready for the wedding. Therefore were many called, but few were chosen. 
And in this do we see in John 3, 15, when he says that whomsoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is made available to all, but it is made available with a condition. Therefore, to the many that are called, it is available, but only those who submit themselves to the condition are chosen. And the condition is a condition of faith. We must believe what Jesus had to say. Because every word that came from his mouth was from the Father. And Jesus, the very embodiment of love, endured all suffering, trial, pain, shame, and torment to bring us those words of truth that we might be able to believe them, receive them, and have that way of escape. Because when we walk in them or we walking in his righteousness, we have put on the righteousness of Christ, that wedding garment, and we are chosen to be let in in the end at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Therefore, I tell you again that whomsoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. You see, my friend, God truly loves you. Even when you were lost in your sin, he was willing to give everything. God was willing to bankrupt heaven of its greatest treasure to bring you back into it. Because you see, every word that was spoken throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures, was speaking God's truth, God's love, and speaking of the Christ to come. And therefore, when Christ, who is the Word made flesh, He was the manifestation of everything that God had spoken from the beginning, came and began to prove God's words true. We were given another opportunity to come into agreement with them, to believe them. That we might once be able to enter in and come back into agreement with him. Because as we learned yesterday, the Bible says, can two walk together except they agree? And of course we cannot. Therefore, was God ever trying to bring us back to that place where he could walk with us again in the cool of the garden? And have that fellowship, that communion, that agreement. But because that he had given us that law, that contract, that word that said, if you sin, you will die. And we agreed with him, but then the enemy slipped in and he got in our ear and he said, no, you won't surely die. You will be like us. You will have great knowledge. And so in that moment when they chose to agree with the enemy, they no longer agreed with God and, and therefore could no longer walk therein. They were not in agreement with him because as Amos said, can two walk together except they agree. So did God send his precious son to prove that everything he had ever spoken to you and me was not only truth, but it was for our good now and for eternity. Jesus came to be an example of everything that God had spoken because you see God gave laws and commandments and he was trying to tell us how to be good sons and daughters. He was trying to show us what true love looks like, but in our selfishness and our pride, we refuse to abide. So he sends his son to walk out what he had been speaking out so that we might see it. And believe it because he loved you he wouldn't leave you in agreement with the enemy and under the bondage thereof because God so loved the world he was willing to send his only begotten son to say go 
show them what it looks like. Show them that I love them. Show them that everything that I have spoken was for their good and if they would but trust me and allow this selfish, prideful, devil-influenced flesh to die, be crucified, then I can raise them again in newness of life that if they would give up their self-will and be obedient to my will, that it will always turn out for the best for them in the end. Go forth, my son, and prove it to them. Because he loved you, he was willing to endure the shame, the hate, and the reproach, the pain, the agony, the crushing of Gethsemane, the olive press, to prove to you that his words are true and that if he has spoken it, he is able to deliver it if you have the faith to commit to walk in it. Because that if he was able to raise Christ from the dead, then he is able also to raise you into newness of life, not only in this life, but also in the one to come whenever Jesus comes back and we stand before his throne and rule and reign with him for a thousand years in that great city. My friends, you have been called to it no matter who you are or where you've been because he came for whomsoever he loved you that much. But it comes with a condition. We've got to believe when we come into agreement with what he says, we can walk with him again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son. Of God, My friend, Jesus did not come to condemn you to hell. The reality is, is that we were already condemned. We hear it all the time. Why would a loving God send you to hell? My friend, he is not sending you to hell. You have sent yourself. You are already condemned because that all are born into sin and come into agreement with the enemy. We make him our master. Therefore, at the end, we will be where he is. But Jesus, he didn't come to bring condemnation. He came to bring salvation, to give us the way of escape. And it's so sad that so many reject eternal love and salvation for temporary pleasures, which are really just the enemy's manipulation. Because even in those pleasures, there is torment. There's no victory in it. There's nothing that satisfies it's all pride, lust, and lies. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. God so loved the world. He loves you. The reality is, is that he loves everyone out there. There is a love in his heart for all of creation because God is love. Though God must enact wrath because he is just wrath is not who he is it's just what he has to do God is love he is love and he loves you he wants you to love him too therefore was he willing to give up that which he loves the most to save you and to show you that his words are true think about what Jesus endured to redeem us 
people, it should break our heart and humble us to our very knees to think about what Jesus endured to redeem you and me. That he was a man acquainted with sorrows that we cannot even begin to comprehend. Because though there is so much laid out in scripture, it does not cover the entirety of his life, of all the things that he endured. For example, we know that sometime between the age of 12 years old and the beginning of his public ministry, Joseph, Jesus' earthly caretaker, Mary's husband, died. Therefore, did Jesus, as the eldest son in that family, have to take on the responsibilities, even as a young child, of working, laboring, protecting, tending for, and caring for the family? He worked very hard, very young, as a carpenter. And one has to wonder that even as a child, every time he struck a nail into a piece of wood, did he know Did he have to carry the weight and the crushing of what he knew was coming? All of his life, as he carried that lamb on his shoulders to Jerusalem for the yearly sacrifice, did that child go there knowing that one day it will be me? He carried the burden for the church as he wept when he approached Jerusalem and cried out over them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, How I would have gathered thee under my wing to protect you, to provide for you, to love you. But you kill all of those who come to try to speak my truth to you that you might come into agreement with it so that I cannot protect you. He carried a burden for the church. He carried a zeal for the Lord. He carried the shame and the reproach of the people as many hated him for the truth that he spoke to them not understanding that he was not condemning them, but trying to save them. All the way up to the day of crucifixion, when they stripped him naked. Yes, I know for modesty's sake, the images we've seen were nice and robed, but in reality, crucifixions were done completely naked because they meant to shame the victim as much as possible. He was shamed before all men. He was beaten to the point where the Bible says that he was not recognizable as a human being and that every rib bone could be counted because of the flesh that had been so thoroughly stripped from his back. They spat upon him. They pulled his beard. They pushed those thorns into his head all the time, mocking him. This was our king who could sit on a throne and watch from eternity, who with one word could erase everything and start again. He did it because he loved you and me. He would have done it for just one. If it was only you, he would have endured and gone through with what he went through just for you. After enduring all of this beating and torture, they put the cross on his back and made him walk to Mount Calvary. And when they put him up on that cross, my friend, I don't know if I can make you truly understand the agony of crucifixion, what he endured for you to prove to you that he truly loves you and that every word that he speaks is truth and it is meant to save you if you will just but believe it. Because my friend, crucifixion was a science. 
The Romans had figured out the way to get the most pain into a person without killing them so that they would be left alive for as long as possible to suffer as much as possible. Therefore, when they were hung up on the cross, because of the position that they were hung in, they were suffocating under the weight of their own body. So they would have to push themselves up to gasp for a breath of air and then lower themselves down to let it out. Imagine Jesus as he was nailed to that cross, his back peeled open from the whip, the cat of nine tails. And yet every breath that he tried to breathe, even to get in enough air to pray that prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The agony that he had to endure to be able to pray that prayer for you, that he had to push his bare, open wounded back up against that splintered wooden cross to rise up enough to get a breath and then slide back down it again to get those words out in order to pray for you with his last breath. And even in the midst of all of it, they offer him vinegar to drink. Can you imagine the pain of it pouring over his open wounds, cutting his breath as he is already suffering for the last bit of air? And let me tell you something, my friend, it is scientifically proven what killed Jesus. He literally died of a broken heart. Because that when they pierced his side and the water gushed out, any medical professional can tell you that without a doubt, that is the sign of someone whose heart has literally ruptured. You think you've been under pressure. Jesus literally died of a broken heart while proving to you that he loves you. God, give us a revelation unto salvation of the love of Jesus Christ. You see, my friend, I've got to explain something to you. The Bible says that Jesus came to redeem us from the sin of the curse, that he was hung on a tree to become the curse, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a divine exchange. We give up our lives and he gives us his. We give up our will that his might live through us. And we don't do it out of obligation or law. We do it out of love because we love him when we realize how much he first loved us. To understand the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, we've got to understand what redemption really is. In the Old Testament cultures, they lived in family units, kind of like tribes with the chieftain, the head of the family, that eldest male, he was the redeemer of the family. All of the people within the family, they all worked together and all the resources of the family went to the head of the family, the Redeemer. And it was his job to make sure that everybody was taken care of, everybody was fed, all the supplies that were needed were gotten. And if somebody was lost from the family, they ran away, they were stolen away, they were made slaves. They went into debt, whatever the issue, it was the Redeemer's job to go and redeem them back, bring them back into the family. And you see, there would come a time at which the eldest son of the family would come into that place of sonship where the Redeemer would announce that all the resources of him and his house were going to be passed down onto the son, the eldest son, and he would be the new Redeemer of the family. And when everything was given to this eldest son, all the rest of the family celebrated and worshipped. They weren't envious or jealous because they knew that this meant that he's going to take care of us. He's going to supply all my needs. I just do my part in the family and everything that I need will be provided for me. And I don't have to worry 
because I know I have a place. I know I have a home. I know I have a family. And if someone was ever lost from that family, the Redeemer would stop at nothing to redeem them, to get them back into the family. Jesus is our Redeemer. We left the family. We sold ourselves into slavery to a cruel master like Gomer the harlot. You see, Hosea was Gomer's Redeemer. He paid for her with a price. He brought her back into the family. Boaz was Ruth's redeemer. He brought her back into the family, gave her an inheritance, a land, and a possession. Abraham was Lot's redeemer. He interceded for him even in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Jesus is our redeemer. He loves us. He brings us salvation to bring us back into the family, to return the hearts of the children back to the Father and the heart of the Father back to the children. Jesus endured all to win your heart again, pay the price for your life, and bring you back in to the family. He redeemed you from the curse of sin. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. My friend, God loves you no matter where you've been no matter what the sin whomsoever shall believe in him shall be saved he's come to redeem you back from the curse he made away and if you can get that in your spirit today it can change everything It'll keep you from straying. It'll motivate your praying. It will drive your obeying. Your whole life will start changing. I'm telling you, my friend, if you get a revelation of the love of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son, into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. I think the problem that some people struggle with faith is because they believe the lie that they've got to prove to God that they love Him, when all the while God is saying, I just want you to have faith that I love you. Because once you have faith in the fact that I love you, you will love me back by default. Because my friend, that's the nature of love. That's the way that it works. Remember that the Bible says in Ephesians that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And he says that I give you this mystery because at first he starts speaking to husbands and wives about how their relationship should work. And then he concludes it by saying it's a mystery because I'm not actually talking about you. I'm talking about Christ in the church. When he says husbands love your wives, even as Christ, Christ loved the church, being willing to lay down your very life for her. And wives, respect your husbands and honor him, obeying him because of the love in the same manner that the church should obey and honor Christ. You see, there is a pattern here in that the husband loves the wife to the point where he's willing to sacrifice. And then in response to that love, because he first loved her so much, the wife then returns the love. The wife respects, obeys, and loves back. We're wired to work this way, even though the culture tries to change it. 
This is why traditionally the man has always been the one that sought out the bride, that proposed to the bride, that labored to sacrifice for the bride and for the family. And then in response, the bride who was meant to be his helpmate respects him and honors him and loves him and is not grieved by obeying his commandments or working to serve the family because that he first loved her so much that he proved it through his willingness to sacrifice it invokes a response of love back and paul says in the same manner does it work between christ and the church that because he has already loved us, because he has already approached us, chosen us, proposed to us, and was willing to sacrifice for us, that when we recognize the level of love that he has shown towards us, it should cause a response of love back to him that will drive us to want to serve him and obey him and care for the family. This is why Paul said that his commandments are not grievous to us. They are not a law. They are love. Though he does command us and give us things that we follow his leading, it is not grievous, it is not law, it is love. And this was the love of God manifested towards us. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When we get a revelation of the love of God, it will drive all else overcoming praying seeking and obeying will no longer be hard it will be the desire of our heart now i need to explain something to you in that passage where it says god is love we have to look at the original word in the greek here for love because in the greek there were multiple words for love that in the english was translated to just love but in the greek they had different meanings and representations for example sometimes when you read love in the english and you go back to the greek what's actually there is the word philia which was specifically related to a friendship kind of love because obviously the love you have for a friend is not the same love that you have for a spouse Another type of love that you may commonly see in scripture was Eros. Now, Eros was a lustful love. Eros was actually the name of a pagan god, which Paul says are actually demons. Therefore, do we see that Eros or lust is actually a demonic love? It's a selfish love. It's a counterfeit of the real love. And many times when the world tries to tell us that we have to stand in agreement because of love. What they're actually referring to is eros, which is not a godly love. It's a selfish love, a self-centered love, a self-seeking love, a love based on pleasure, on the pleasure that is to oneself. Then there was sorge, which was a family type of love. For example, the love that you might have between siblings or cousins or parents and children. But this love in this passage where it says God is Love, when we look it up in the original Greek, the word used there is agape. And agape was a specific type of love. Agape was a sacrificial, absolutely selfless love that always thinks of the other. It's sometimes interpreted to charity. God is love, but God's love is sacrificial. It is selfless. It is pure. It is true love. And he demonstrated that love to us on Calvary when he thought of us above his self, above all. As I pressed into prayer this morning, the song began to play above all like a rose trampled on the ground. He took the fall and thought of us above all. That is agape love. 
And that is the love as Christians that we are called to have towards God first and towards others second. That if we will love him above all and then love others secondly, we will walk in the fullness of obedience to our king. Because this is what Christ was demonstrating. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 6, we read the biblical description of what agape truly is. Because though it is translated charity in this text, it is actually love or agape. Because I want you to understand this. Jesus said, God is a spirit, therefore he is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. If God is a spirit and God is love, then therefore we can conclude that God literally is the spirit of love. He is agape. So to have the character of agape is to have the character of God. And if we are indwelled by him, then we should radiate him. We should represent him. We should permeate him. And to find out exactly what the Bible says that character is, we have to go to 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 6. Because though it is translated to charity in this text, we have to understand that the original word there is agape. So charity applies, love applies, and the word God himself applies because God is agape. Because the agape love, it says here, is long-suffering. It is willing to endure. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not brag about itself. It is not puffed up or prideful. It does not behave itself unseemingly. It does not seek its own. It is not easily provoked. It does not think evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. This is the definition of agape according to the scripture. It is the very character of God. It is who he is. And if we want to learn his character, this is what it is. And then we need to come to terms with the reality that we need to reflect his character. So this is who we need to be. I know that we've done a prayer before on love and we've already covered many of the ways that God has commanded us to walk in his love. But today I specifically want to bring you to the reality of his love for you, that this is who he is. He is long suffering. He is kind. He does not envy. He does not vaunt himself or, or boast himself. He is not prideful or puffed up. He does not behave himself unseemingly. He is not indecent or out of order. He does not seek after his own. He puts you first. He is not easily provoked. His thoughts are not evil. He does not rejoice in iniquity, but he does rejoice in the truth. This is who God is. It is good news. We've got to repent of our sins, grab hold of the redemptive power of the blood of Jesus Christ, and learn how to love him with joy out of a desire because that we truly understand how much that he loves us. And you don't have to earn your way to him. You don't have to earn that love. You've just got to receive it, believe it, and walk in it. Because Romans 5 verse 8 says that God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath 
to come. My friend, he was on that cross and he knew even then that you were going to be born into sin and you were going to do all those vile and wicked things, but that he had made a way to bring you back in to be your redeemer. If you would but trust him, take the way of escape and praise him for it, to recognize all that he saved you from, even things that are yet to come. He did it all for you. If you'll just believe it and receive it, my friend, I'm telling you, it will make your heart new and it will make your walk so easy. If he loved you enough to die for you while you were still yet a sinner, how much more does he truly love you now? You know, a verse that I really love and I have to remind myself of often is that the psalmist says that God knows our frame and remembers that we are dust because sometimes we just don't get it. Sometimes we mess it up. Sometimes we stumble and fall. And in those moments, we've got to remind ourselves he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. If we are not intentionally intending to sin and hurt him, he is not angry with us. He is willing to correct us and to instruct us because he loves us. Don't run from the correction. I've got to tell you a quick little story here because I think it's going to help someone today. My husband had gotten a puppy about a year or so ago. And when we first got the puppy, we were house training him to teach him how to use the bathroom outside. And of course, being a small puppy, he made some mistakes, some accidents. He did not understand that I didn't want him messing up the house like this. And so I had to fuss at him and correct him. But he didn't understand what I was fussing at him about. So he ran and he hid under the bed. And for about an hour or so, he just hid from me. But the reality of it was, is that I wanted nothing more than for him to come back so I could cuddle him and sit with him on the couch. And I was really just trying to get him to a place where I could trust him in the house because I wanted him with me. I wanted him to be near me. I wanted him close to me. I wanted to be able to let him stay in this place. But to do so, I had to train him. I had to teach him. I had to change some things about him because he couldn't stay the way that he was. I was doing it out of love because I wanted him near me, but he didn't understand that. So he started to fear me. And so he ran and hid. So of course I had to go get him and cuddle him and show him that it was okay. And it didn't take him long to learn, but in it, God showed me that we do the same thing because he loves us and he wants to be able to trust us not to mess up his house. He wants to be able to use us in the greater things. He wants to be able to cuddle us and keep us close. He doesn't want us to have to be cast out into the yard then he's got to correct us and train us and change some things about us. But I think that often when that first correction comes, we run and hide from him like Adam and Eve in the garden. But my friend, I assure you that the closer you stay to the master, the quicker you'll learn the lessons. Don't hide from him. He's not mad at you. He's just trying to train you because he wants you close to him. And so when those corrections come, humble yourself to it, submit to it, learn. And then go cuddle with him. Because believe me, friend, he still loves you. Psalms 86.15 says, But thou, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. My friend, his mercies endure every morning. 
He has so much patience for our mistakes. Now, he does get provoked to anger by intentional, willful rebellion. Understand that I'm not making an excuse for sin, but we've got to find that balance where we know that he is love and he is mercy and he is compassion and he is so willing to teach us and to show us and to grow us that we might become mature sons and daughters that he can trust with the affairs of his house. Do you know that the main reason that Jonah ran away from his call to preach the word of wrath to Nineveh was because that he knew that God was so loving and merciful? After Jonah had went into Nineveh and preached that the wrath of God was coming upon them and they all humbled themselves and repented, Then he went out of the city and sat to watch to see if the word that the Lord had given him would come to pass. And of course, because they had repented, it did not. And then he sat there and argued with God and said, you made me look like a false prophet. You see, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that you were a God of love and of compassion and of great mercy. And I knew that in your mercy, if they would repent, you would not bring the judgment upon them that I have preached. My friend, how silly is that? The reluctant preacher who ran from the greatest revival the world has ever known, where the most souls were saved from sure judgment. An entire city repented, and he's complaining to God because it made him look like a false prophet. Jonah had a reality of God's love, but he didn't carry that love in his heart because if he truly would have had God's love, he would have run towards the danger and not away from it because perfect love cast out fear. Therefore, he who fears is not yet made perfect in love. God, we need a revelation of your love today. We need a baptism in love. We need you to impart to us with supernatural understanding how much you love us. That we would desire that time in your presence, that we would not hide from it, but run to it. Even when the correction comes, Lord, we understand that you correct us because you love us. That a good father leads, guides, directs, and corrects because you love us and you want the best for us. The Bible says that any parent who does not correct their child does not love their child. It shows that they are not concerned about what's best for them in the long run. My friend, I leave you with this revelation today that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Because it shows that they do not care. It's selfishness. And agape is not selfish. It is selfless. It is always concerned about the other. What's best for the other. Church, we've got to stop walking in indifference. Because walking in indifference is not walking in the love of God. And it's got to be love for God above all. Because he was the rose trampled on the ground who took the fall and thought of us. Love for man will sometimes drive you to do the right thing and sometimes it'll drive you to do the wrong thing. But love for God will always drive you to do the right thing. That's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And second to that, was to love others more than yourself. And if you do these, you will fulfill all the law and the commandment. But you have to love God first and foremost and do what is best for him. Do you love like that? 
Do you even know what it looks like to love like that? In 1732, there were two young German men who felt the call of the Lord to go and minister to African slaves on the Moruvian Islands. Their names were Johann Dauber and David Nitschmann. But there was a problem. These islands were slave islands. They were work islands. They were plantation islands. They could not get onto the islands except but by one way. And so they sold themselves to slave owners and boarded a ship for the West Indies. And as the ship pulled away from the docks, they cried out to their loved ones on shore, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That's what agape looks like. That is the love of Christ. Manifested through a life. That one phrase echoes with power through the ages and through eternity. No more indifference, church. They loved their fellow man with their very lives because that they loved their Christ. They were driven by the love of their God who loved them so much that he was willing to give his life for them, that they were willing to give their life for him, that he might receive the reward of his suffering. Not until we truly love Christ can we ever love men right. It's time we love our God because that he has so selflessly and willingly loved us. Because when we do, we will do what is right. Not what we think is right, but what he says is right, which is righteousness. And it will become so easy to listen to only his voice, to agree only with his words, to reject the seductions of the enemy, to be a faithful bride. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one said, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Then a disciple saith unto him, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. My friend, if we cannot obey the will and word of God, then we've got to come to terms today that it's because we do not really love him. And if we do not really love him, it's because we do not really believe or understand or have a revelation of how much he loves us and what he endured on that cross to prove to you that he does. God, we need a baptism of your agape, selfless, sacrificial, perfect love today. God, I pray that you break the hearts of the people, that you take the stony hearts out of our chest and you give us a new heart, your heart, a heart of flesh, because we cannot love other men until that we have first learned to love you. And we cannot truly come to love you until we get that revelation that you have truly first loved us, that we don't have to earn it. It's not about trying to make you love us, but to receive 
believe in reality that you really do love us, that it would drive us to have a desire to love you back. And only in that will your commandments not be grievous, but they will be joyous because it's not a labor of law, it's a labor of love. God, I pray that you move on the hearts of everyone listening today and baptize them in a revelation of your love right now that they can experience it every day, that they would be desirous and driven to that place of prayer and of seeking and of intercession and of being taught by you, God, because it is so wonderful to sit in your presence. I love it. I desire it because it is so good. God, for some it has become such a labor because that they've lost that first love so lord we come back to that first love it's one of the problems in the churches and revelations that we've been discussing in one of those churches lord you talked about all the things that they did right and the list was long and it was amazing and they walked in right doctrine but they had left their first love that's you they weren't communing with you spending that time worshiping you and just enjoying being in your presence because out of it out of that worship out of that prayer and intimacy flows all of the works and all of the gifts and all of the fruits and everything that we could ever hope to attain to it will come if we will seek you first and your righteousness then all of these things will be added unto us God it becomes so easy when I see how much you love me and I want to run to you and not from you. I want to be taught by you, corrected by you, directed by you because it's going to get me closer to you. Whatever you've got to bring me through to bring me to what you made me to do, I am willing because I love you. And I love you because I know that you first loved me. Though I was unworthy, Though you had no reason to, you had no necessity to, you had no obligation to, but you wanted to. So I love you, God, because you deserve to be loved. And I will love others and endure all to bring them to the revelation of your love that they might love you too, because that you are worthy of the reward of your suffering. I will be driven by love for you and nothing else because until that I have loved you, I cannot walk in right standing with you and ever hope to assume to do what is right for others or even right for myself. I humble myself to you today, oh my King of glory, and I worship you. Lord, teach the people how to pray. There are many that have been asking you, Lord, to teach them how to press into that secret place. And today we break through with the truth that it comes so easily from you when we come to that place where we truly believe that you love us 
And it drives us to desire to love you back, to worship you, to praise you. And then the word says that we will enter into his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts and into his carts with praise. It is praise and thanksgiving pushes us through into the inner courts where we can be with you. That place of protection, of abiding and residing. We come to you broken and undone because that we recognize how much you have loved us and we worship you for it. And as we worship you for it, we can't help but thank you for it. And as we thank you for it, we begin to praise you for it. And as we praise you for it, we begin to enter in through your gates and into your courts. And then we begin to commune with you again. Oh God, we thank you for your redemption. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.